Mind my eyes. I can't see what I'm doing. I can't see with them on either when they got fingerprints on them. This morning, I know we stayed a little late, and I appreciate some of you folks' comments you made about I don't have to worry about that, and I realize that here at our church. Some people don't like going past noon, and uh, somebody made a comment to me a while ago, said, man, you don't have to apologize. Well, if we'll review the tape, I I really didn't apologize. Uh, It was kind of an offhanded apology, I guess you could say, but I do appreciate that. Uh, because there are some churches you preach in, if you go over noon, why, they're ready to get rid of you. They're done. Matter of fact, I've told you the story before. I've had uh, folks in churches tell me how long I could preach, and and uh, any any church that done that, I've never been invited back, so I don't understand that. But uh, Tonight, folks, I want to finish up what we started last week and finish up our study in Second Peter. You remember last week, Uh, Peter talked to us about the fact that Jesus is coming, so that means judgment is coming. Well, I want to tie in tonight with that, and I want to talk about how we should live while we wait until that day. Now, (laughs) I'll be honest with you, I am, uh, among other things, problems I have, I'm not an overly patient person. Uh, That's probably a a terrible understatement, actually. I, uh, I, I... but let me say this before I tell you, I'm not a patient person. I would say I'm not the only one in this room that is not a patient person. Okay, I have been with some of you folks. I know you're just impatient as I am on some things. But uh, I, I, I'll tell you some things I hate. I hate waiting in line to get in the restaurant. Anybody else? I, yeah, yeah. I hate waiting at the restaurant for somebody to take my order. I hate waiting at the restaurant for my food to get there. I hate waiting at the restaurant to pay the check so I can leave the restaurant. I hate waiting at red lights. I hate waiting or driving slow behind chicken trucks or rock trucks. Uh, I hate waiting in traffic jams. I hate waiting at the doctor's office for an appointment at 10.15 and it's 11 o'clock before you ever get back there. I hate waiting on the telephone to talk to a real live person only to find, now only to find when I talk to a real live person, at best, they don't know what they're talking about. At worst, not only do they not know what they're talking about, but they can't understand English. Uh, I mean, I I hate, uh, I just hate waiting in lines. I'm just not a patient person. Now, let me ask you, do you sense a pattern with all that? Okay, well, I hope you saw another pattern as well. I, I hate waiting, but the other pattern is waiting is a part of life. I mean, we're constantly, always, it seems like, waiting on something or on someone. And with so many things to wait on, uh, the issue becomes, how do I use that time? I mean, what do I do while I wait? For instance, I can be in the doctor's office and my appointment is at 10 and it's 11 and they haven't called me yet and so I could sit there and stew about it and feel my blood pressure beginning to rise or I can use that time to talk to friends or talk to family or maybe make some new friends. I make a lot of new friends in the doctor's office. I can, uh, you know, while I'm waiting somewhere, I can let my anger begin to to just devour me to the point where I know in my heart life is unfair, the whole universe appears to be against me, 
Or I can spend that time, you know what? Just meditating, me and God alone. I can spend the time waiting, detached from life. You know, go to the nether reaches where cognitive and sensory processes just cease to exist. You know what I'm talking about? I could just sit there and be brain dead. Or I could read my Bible. You say you carry your Bible with you, doctor's office and other places. Well, how many of you got a phone? I could either read the Bible in hand. If I don't have it in one hand, I've got, I don't have any applications on my phone of Scripture. Now, the truth is, folks, we all wait whether we want to wait or not. Now, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, he says all of creation is waiting. All of creation waits. You say, waiting for what? Same thing, really, we're all waiting on. That's the coming of the Lord. That is the end of time, the end of things that we talked about last week. There's going to be an end to all things. So scientists on that aspect, they're right. This world is winding down. This world is fading away. Now, it's not going to end necessarily the way they think it's going to end. But with each passing day, all of creation is marching toward its appointed end. That day is coming. We just don't know when that day of the Lord is coming. Let's start by reading verse 10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, that doesn't mean uh, silently. It means surprisingly, without warning. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works <coughs> excuse me, that are therein, shall be burned up. So, the question I have, once again, is how should we live while we wait? Well, Peter gives us an answer to that. Look at verse 11. Let's read verse 11 all the way to the rest of the chapter. Seeing then that all these things, he's talking about the world and all the things of the world, should be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in holy conversation or in your lifestyle, in your conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire, and notice he says this twice in this passage, shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to His promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering or the patience of our Lord is salvation. Even as our brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned are unstudied in it, and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, uh, or they fight, wrestle with the other scriptures, other scriptures under their own destructions. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. In other words, he's saying, guard your heart. You know what's true. Hold that truth close. Verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Father, as we look at this passage tonight, uh, I know many of us have probably read it many times before. I pray we would see it uh, tonight, perhaps uh, in, in the, the light that it needs to be seen. Maybe we'd see it as if seeing it for the first time. We would understand that, uh, that yes, our Lord, our Savior is coming again. We know that. We are sure to that because of your word. But we would see that because of that, there are certain things that need to be true in our lives. There, there is a, a way that we should be living. 
Father, I pray it be clear to us tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Now, <clears throat> earlier, when I was talking about those things that I wait for and, and that I'm not very fond of the waiting process, it would seem a fair question to ask then, well, preacher, why do you wait? Well, why does anybody wait? There's two reasons. Number one, because I have to. Or number two, I'm waiting because I'm looking forward to what comes after the wait is over. That is the only reason that I'll wait at a restaurant. And let me say this, if that food is not worth the wait, I will not be back. Marcia knows that. I just draw the line on it. And if people say it's great, uh, the, the ambiance, I'm, I'm not paying for ambiance. I can have that at home. You know what I mean? If I go somewhere, I want to eat something that I can't eat at home. I'm not saying and the cooking's great at home. So it, they have to go a long ways to make me want to come back and to make me want to wait for it. So two reasons to wait. One, you don't have any choice. Or two, you're looking forward to what comes after the wait's over. Well, in looking at this text <coughs> and thinking about the coming day of the Lord, as Christians, Peter tells us how we should live. And number one, he says as Christians, we should look forward to that day. So there, there should be a sense of anticipation because of that day. Uh, and even though some of it we don't totally comprehend, we don't totally grasp or understand. Uh, I was reading a sermon of John MacArthur, and he did a sermon on this passage. He poses a question that's along the same lines the Apostle Paul poses at the end of 1 Corinthians. Babe, I'm going to have to have something to drink. At the end of 1 Corinthians, when he talks about the fact that if Christ is not raised from the dead, what does that mean? It means that our faith is in vain. It means that uh, uh, we're without hope and we're of all men pitied. Well, MacArthur kind of challenges us in that sermon to think about the implications if Jesus Christ is not coming again. And he lists seven of them. I want you to listen to these. If it's true, if Christ is not coming back, then wrong would never be right. Injustice would never be replaced with justice. Number two, suffering will never be rewarded in this world. Number three, the curse on this world will never be removed. Number four, paradise would always be lost and never regained. Number five, the hope of the human heart for a better life and world would be an illusion, just a dream. Number six, there would be no end to pain, sickness, death, or disappointment. And then number seven, if Christ is not returning, then sin rules and Satan wins. And then he wraps that sermon up by saying this, that a life Life lived without the hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that means life would be a cruel joke. And he said, how can anyone bear such a belief? And I tend to agree with him on that. i got to tell you, the, the, the older I get, the longer I'm in ministry, the more I'm looking forward to the end of all things. We should be looking forward to that day, and I look forward to that day. But let me say something here. Maybe you've often felt like this, but you really didn't know quite how to word it. At times, it's almost like I have some mixed emotions about the end of all things. It's kind of like a, a, a paradox. You know, that's, that's something like a situation that's made up of two opposites that seemed impossible, but actually it's true, so they're possible. And the reason I say a paradox or mixed emotions is because in saying we should look forward to that day, I think as believers we need to remember that what we're really looking forward to is what happens after that day. Now remember, I'm talking about this after the rapture, the church go, we're coming back with Christ. Uh, Christ is coming back to set things right. And what are we looking forward to after that day of the Lord? It's the results that's going to take place. 
Now here's the catch on it. We forget, and I think we need to be reminded, that the second coming of Jesus is primarily a judgment event. Are you following me so far? I told you last week, judgment's coming because Jesus is coming. So the return of Christ is actually a judgment event. So thinking of that day, folks, we should view it with a sense of brokenness. Now follow me on this. Because we know what it means to those who don't know Christ. Every man, every woman, every child on this earth who will enter into eternity (coughs) without Him. We understand what that means. So in that sense, it's a tragic day. But in looking at the totality of the event, it'll be a day of accountability for us as well. Christian, think about this. It'll be a day of loss as our life's work as believers. Now, not our salvation, okay, but the works that we have done are judged. And I'm going to be honest with you, and if you're honest, you'll probably say the same thing. Much of what I've done in my life, it's going to be burned up because I did it with the wrong motives. But I praise God it'll also be a day when those things, those works that were done with the right motives and done in obedience to Christ, uh, they're going to be purified by God. And in His grace, He is going to reward us even further. And I'm always amazed by that as if eternity with Him is not enough already. It's a day that uh, all things that vex us, that plague us, will be gone. Death, violence, disease, hatred, racism, greed, all these things will be gone. Again, I am looking forward to that day. Uh, I'm looking forward to the fight, to the struggle being gone. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of my sin. And I'm going to tell you as a preacher and a pastor, I'm tired of the battle. I'm weary. I'm battle-scarred and worn. And not just me, but a lot of pastors are. I don't know if anybody else read the article by Tom Rainer about the fact that uh, more men, more ministers, preachers are leaving the pastoral ministry, he said, than ever in my life. And he said, we believe through research that more pastors are leaving now the pastoral ministry than ever in the history of the church. People say, well, why is that? Well, part of it is the virus. And I know, I know all the stress goes along with it. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many other things that most people have no idea about that a pastor deals with day in, day out, all the time. Night, day, weekends, vacation, all of it. Not to mention the stress of, of preaching God's Word two or three times a week. And preaching at times where you know that people are lost and headed to hell, but they don't care. You care, and your heart breaks, but they don't care. Let me tell you something. Those things begin to take a toll on you. People say, well, you know, if a pastor is fallen in the Lord, well, yeah, that's true. But a pastor is no different than a lot of folks. We get depressed. We get discouraged. We take our eyes off the price, and we begin to think about all those things around us. And when that happens, that's a good way to fall. That's a good way to burn out. That's a good way to say, I'm done. I'll do something else. And my question is, if Jesus delays all these events, what are churches going to do when they can't find a pastor? When they can't find a man that's qualified and called to be a pastor? I think we're already seeing that in the church today in America. Uh, The big fight in the Southern Baptist Convention about it's okay to ordain women. That's another sermon. I don't want to go into that tonight. 
But I want to tell you, I, I, I'm looking forward to the ultimate rest and the victory when Jesus comes and sets things right. It's going to be a time we can look forward to. It's a time when weapons, the Bible says, are beaten in the plowshares where bears are going to graze with cows and wolves. They're going to lay down and take naps with the lambs. The day of the Lord is going to be the end of all things as we know it. Now twice Peter makes reference to the heavens passing with a roar and the elements destroyed by intense heat and, and, and uh, all its works being burned up in verse 10 and verse 12. What Peter is saying is all that is contaminated by sin is going to be destroyed at that point in time. We look forward to that day, not just because it's going to be the end of all things, but no, as Christians, we know with the end of all things comes the beginning of new and better things. Look again at verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, I'm going to let that verse hang there for just a minute. You may want to underline or highlight about what that verse says. Where dwelleth righteousness. What that means is <laughs> the new heaven and new earth is going to be a home to righteousness. Folks, we never witnessed anything like that. Where righteousness rules. Righteousness reigns. Now I'm going to tell you, that's something to look forward to. Our waiting ought to be filled with excitement. It ought to be filled with anticipation. I want you to notice in three verses... Verses 12, 13, and 14, in the span of those three verses, Peter says three times, look for, or looking for. The ESV says wait, or waiting for, that day. You see, it's not just a waiting, but what Peter is emphasizing is, it is a longing. It is an anticipation that should fill our hearts. It's kind of like, some of y'all got kids, remember when you had little kids, it's kind of like Christmas Eve night. You know how excited they were for that, that next morning to get there. I mean, they were ready for Christmas. And if you're like me, there was a lot of times I'm like, yeah, I'm ready for that morning to get here and get gone. But it's an excitement, anticipation uh, that fills their hearts. I, I read a story about a guy by the name of Robbie Robbins. He was an Air Force pilot in the first Iraqi war. He flew 300 missions. On his 300th mission, when he and his crew touched down, as they were... Uh, disembarking or getting off the plane, whatever they call it, Colonel walked over to him and said, Robbie, you guys go get all your stuff, load your crew up, gas the plane, and head home. He said it caught him by surprise. He said, Colonel, he said, the war's over. He said, you guys are some of the first to know it. He said, you've flown 300 missions, load your crew, head back to the States. So they loaded everything up and they flew back to Massachusetts and then they had a long drive from there to western Pennsylvania. And they drove all night long. And as his buddies dropped him off at his house, just after sunup one morning, there was a big banner across his garage that said, Welcome home, Dad. And he said, I thought to myself, how in the world did they know I was coming home? I mean, nobody called. He said, we just barely heard it two days ago. So how did they know we were on our way home? He said when he walked in the door that his kids were, were uh, almost dressed for school. And he said, they screamed, Daddy, and they come running down the hallway. And about that time, his wife, he said, come that running down the hallway, said she was beautiful. He said her hair was fixed, makeup on, and a beautiful yellow dress. Said she grabbed me and hugged me and jumped into my arms. And he said, I asked her, "Hun, how did you know that I was coming home? She said, I didn't. He said, then what about the banners? What about you and the, the kids all being ready? She said, once we knew 
the war was over, we knew you'd be coming home soon. And we knew you'd want to surprise us. So ever since we heard the news, every morning we've been ready. We've been ready. That story shows a point that I'm making, and that is it's not just looking forward to the day, it's being ready for that day. <clears throat> One writer put it this way uh, in the commentary. He said, the world is not going to be destroyed by an impersonal cosmic explosion, but an encounter with the personal living God. That means our response does matter. If we cannot flee from Him, which we cannot, and we will not be annihilated into nothingness, we must face our responsibility to live holy and godly lives so we are ready to see Him when He arrives. This is the reason that Peter makes the point that he does. Verses 11, the first part of verse 12, verses 14, first part of 15, and 17 and 18. I want you to look with me again at them. Let's read verses 11 and 12. Seeing then all that these things should be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God? Now look down at verse 14, first part of verse 15. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now look again at 17 and 18. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also being led away with error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory now and forever. Amen. So, I'm going to say it again. We ought to look forward to that day, but secondly, folks, we ought to live in such a way that, that we live each day in light of that day. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe said. The purpose of prophetic truth is not speculation, but motivation. What views we hold should make a difference in our lives each day and the way we live our lives. Precisely the point that Peter has been making. Knowing that the day of the Lord's coming and what that means for unbelievers and for believers, that ought to affect the way we live our lives. Knowing, folks, that the day of judgment is coming for those who don't believe and the day of reward for those of us that do believe, that should make a difference in the way we live our lives. So, let's ask a question. What difference should it make? Well, I believe it should cause us to think about the hereafter. It's kind of like a, a young preacher was visiting with an older man one time. He said, sir, I'd think at your age you, you would think about the hereafter a little more. The old man replied, he said, oh, son, I do that all the time. No matter where I'm at, whether it's the kitchen, the bedroom, <coughs> in the basement, outside, in the workshop, I constantly ask myself, what am I here after? It's not quite what Peter's talking about, not what I'm talking about either, but listen, believer, there are some things that God have left, has left us here to be after, to be about. Peter, in light of the coming day of the Lord, he gives us some things we ought to be here after, we ought to be doing in our lives. I want you to look at verse 11, two things he mentions. He says, holy conversation or holy conduct, your Bible may say, that refers to our actions. That refers to the very way we live our lives. It, our lives ought to be characterized by holiness. It ought to be defined by the things of God, not the things of this world that's fading away. Look at that description, verse 11, Peter uses. He says, godliness. That speaks to underlying beliefs, our conviction and our attitudes that drive our conduct and the way we live our lives. One Bible dictionary said, it was a Holman dictionary, it is a respect for God that affects the way a person lives. Belief drives our actions. And I agree with that. Look at verse 14. 
The next thing, Peter, description, he says the way we ought to be living as believers, he says peace. Now he's talking about peace with God. And, and what that speaks of is a wholeness of life that comes from a right relationship with God. How many times you heard this? If you have a right relationship with God, you'll have right relationship with others. You have peace with God, you can have peace with others. Now look at the last description, verse 14. Without spot or spotless and blameless. That simply means our lives ought to be morally pure. In other words, we shouldn't live our lives or our testimony, which is our lives, we shouldn't live it in such a way that it gives others a reason to disbelieve or to doubt the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, uh, Dr. Jerry Vines, I don't know how many of you ever listened to him on the radio, used to listen to him or, or read any of the books, things he's written. He gives a scenario uh, concerning the living in light of the Lord's return. And I'm going to use that. I want you to listen to this. He said, let's take two sets of parents. Now, both sets of parents are heading to college to pick up their sons. One set of parents are going to pick up their son because he has just been awarded the highest honor that can be given from the college to a student. So they're going to pick him up. They're going to take him home and they're going to celebrate. He said the other set of parents, they're also heading to college to get their son, but their son is, hasn't been awarded any reward or award of any kind. Instead, he's been kicked out of school. And he said, so the question is this, which set of parents is anxious to get to their son? In reality, probably both are, but for different reasons. But which set of parents do you think is excited? They're anticipating seeing their son. Well, of course, it's the, the one that got the award, the one that was the, the great student. And then he asked, are we the type of children our Heavenly Father would be anxious to get and to take home? Then he asked this question. Which student do you think is anxious or excited to see his parents? Well, the answer, of course, is obvious. It'd be the child or the son who's done well. Now, from that, let me say this, folks. Speaking for myself, I want to be anxious. I want to be excited and not ashamed when he comes. I want you to look at verse 15. We should be looking forward to that day, which means living for that day. And part of that, Peter says in verse 15, is to regard the long-suffering or the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, excuse me, let me explain this to you. And we know this. We know why the Lord has purposely uh, delayed, purposefully delayed His coming. It's out of love. It's because of grace. Amen? We're all in agreement with that. The Bible makes it clear. What it is, an opportunity for people to come to faith in Christ and be saved. Back up to verse 9. We know this verse. The Lord's not slack or slow concerning His promises, as some has promised as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, folks, the patience and the long-suffering, I believe the reason Peter put that here, the patience and the long-suffering of the Lord, it is an opportunity for us to show and to share the gospel to as many people as possible. That's what we ought to be about while we wait. Peter also tells us that living in the light of that day means, again, according to verse 17 that we read, we ought to guard our hearts so we're not carried away from, uh, from God's purpose with sin. And then verse 18, self-explanatory, we ought to continue living each day in light of that day. We ought to continue growing the grace and knowledge of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that you need to open your Bible more than just when you come to church. I'm going to close right here, folks. I told you I'd be short tonight. Now, I'm going to close with a statement that's not mine, and I don't know where it came from originally, but Johnny Hunt is the one that said it. He said, uh, 
We have only one lifetime in which to earn our rewards, but we have an eternity to enjoy them. So here's the question again. How should we live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again? How should we live while we wait? Well, number one, we ought to live looking forward to that day. Number two, we ought to live in light of that day. And let me recap what that means. That means that our lives should be defined by things of God and not things of this world. That means, number two, that we ought to stand by and on our convictions. Our belief should drive our actions. Number three, that tells us that our, it means that our lives should demonstrate the peace of God that only comes from a right relationship with God. And then the last thing, uh, if we're going to live in light of that day, it means our lives are to be morally pure. I'm going to say it again, Christian. Our lives should not be the cause why somebody doubts or disbelieves in Jesus Christ. That's how you live while you wait. Let's pray. Father, again, we are so blessed to have your word and so thankful that you preserved it for us to make sure that we had it. I thank you for the power that it wields, for the direction that it gives. And I pray each one of us who claim to be your children, that if we belong to you, we'd live like it. We would act like it. Father, we would live longing and looking for the day when Christ sets things right. We should live our life in light of that fact that one day we're going to be face to face with our Redeemer. And also remind us that one day there are millions of people in this world, perhaps billions of people in this world, Father, who... They're not going to stand for reward. They're going to stand there for judgment. I pray that burden our hearts as your children. That we would understand that the good news of Jesus Christ is not something that we keep to ourselves. But it's so good that we can't keep it to ourselves. That we must. We, we are compelled, as the Apostle Paul says, to share the gospel. Father, I thank you for the time that we've had in studying your word. I pray for those who perhaps here tonight... And uh, they, uh, they have drifted, as Peter says, they have not guarded their hearts, but they've drifted away from your purpose because of sin. I pray that tonight they would see that your grace is sufficient to bring them home. And that, Father, they would. They would repent, they would rededicate their life to you, and they'd begin to live the life that you've called them to live. Father, we love you, we praise you for your grace, for your love toward us. And we know that, as your word says, the only reason we love you is because you first loved us. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand, folks. I have